Today's episode is particularly graphic. Listener discretion advised. Hello again, Nightmare Society. A big thanks to our producers for this week's episode. Danielle, Ginger, Mike, Cato J, Devin, Savannah, Pixel Donut, Janelle, Michelle, Diane, Joy, Josh, Shorty, Lauren, Rebecca, Araceli, Kalani Hawaii, Obese J, Katie, Rory, Kaylee, Bradley, and our newest member, Crystal, who is now a member of the Secret Handshake tier. If you're interested in joining the official Nightmare Society campfire online, you can find us on patreon.com slash nightmare society. It's a way you can show support for the podcast, or if you're just interested in bonus episodes, early access, and other creepy things I come across, that is where all of that is housed. There are a few tiers for you to choose from starting at a dollar a month. The Nightmare Society podcast can also be found anywhere you get your podcasts as well as YouTube. And there's a new episode every Thursday, so be sure to subscribe and keep an eye out. Now, get comfy and prepare yourself for another episode of The Nightmare Society. This happened in 1985 when I was 17 years old. I was the youngest of my graduating class and all summer I had been looking at colleges across the region. This is long enough ago that there wasn't any internet and if you wanted to go to college out of state and you didn't have tons of money or connections, you'd actually have to take a trip. I was born in Seattle but at this time my family had been living in Mount Shasta which is a small town in Northern California. I was unable to attend college on time with the rest of my friends because I ended up having to stay home and take care of my mother. She ended up being diagnosed with cancer at the end of the summer and my dad had to continue working 10 hour days in order to pay the bills. So I took care of my mom for a year while dad worked. Luckily my mom didn't have to suffer for long. The cancer had progressed so far by the time they caught it that she passed in the fall. After my mother passed away, my dad made sure I started college as soon as possible. I knew I wanted to go to school in Seattle because the big city life was calling to me. Dad basically handed me $500 and the keys to his old 1982 Chevy pickup and told me to go and that when I got there he'd send me money to get an apartment so I could make my way in the city before school started. He didn't want any obstacles in my way when it came to school. He felt guilty for having kept me home while mom was dying. Not that I would have chosen to be anywhere else, but he was still feeling guilty. So in the middle of fall I ended up driving my dad's truck to northern Seattle. The trip is basically a straight shot from Mount Shasta to Seattle on I-5. It should have been easy, but about halfway through Oregon the pickup truck broke down. A coolant hose sprung a leak and I was unable to repair it on the side of the road. Yes, back then girls from small towns knew about cars. 
So I ended up walking on the side of the interstate northward in the direction of the next town. I had just passed a small town named Green a while back and the map said I was just south of a medium-sized town named Roseburg. I couldn't be sure how far away from Roseburg I was, but walking was not a problem for me, and Roseburg would be much more likely to have a repair shop. So even if it might be further away, it was totally worth the attempt. It was cold that evening, and the wind chill was cutting through my coat and caused me to hate life. I decided it would be best to hitch a ride to Roseburg since it was getting dark quickly. I thought I looked pretty hot back then, but even still no one stopped to give me a lift. I kept walking north and putting my thumb out every time a car came up behind me. It was hours later when one finally stopped. It was a big red 18-wheeler that had no trailer attached. It pulled up in front of me and off to the side of the road and honked its horn. I ran up to the truck, thankful that I could finally get out of the wind. As I opened the passenger side door of the truck, I saw a very friendly looking man at the wheel. He smiled and said, Come on in. As I climbed into the passenger seat, he told me his name was Rick, and I introduced myself in return. He asked me where I was headed, and I told him I needed to get to Roseburg to get a tow truck to pick up my vehicle I left a few miles back. He told me he'd been to Roseburg many times on his routes, and that there wasn't a repair shop or tow truck company open this late at night. He told me he would let me out at a motel so I could sleep the night and then get the tow truck to pick up my vehicle the next morning. I thanked him for his considerate nature. He really did seem kind and thoughtful. We weren't far from Roseburg, according to him, which made sense because we could just now begin to see the signs of civilization amongst the trees on the side of the interstate. We made small talk while he drove the rest of the way. We discussed the cold weather, current events, and even sports. Somewhere in the conversation, he told me that I was very pretty. It caught me off guard, but he didn't say it in a creepy manner, so I merely thanked him and continued talking about sports. He didn't say anything after that, kind of just let me talk. You know that feeling when you realize you've been chatting on and on about something and the other person hasn't said a word for a few minutes? Well, I got that feeling, because he hadn't said a word since he told me I was pretty. I stopped and apologized for being so chatty and talking his ear off. He looked at me and smiled and said it was alright. He likes to hear my pretty voice. That time he did say it in a creepy way, but sometimes that happens. I doubted he meant to do that. I kept quiet in hopes that he'd start talking and we would discuss something else. Instead, we didn't say a word. He watched the road and I just sat there. In a minute I began looking around the cab and I ended up looking in the back of the cab behind me. What I saw puzzled me. In the back there was a large brown blanket, some clothes I'm pretty sure were dirty, and some shoes. 
The thing that puzzled me was they weren't all his clothes and shoes. Two pair of the shoes were obviously little girl's shoes, and some of the clothes were little girl's clothes. Something you'd expect a ten-year-old to wear. He knew I had seen it and laughed. He told me his daughter left those in the cab after she accompanied him on a route last week. He told me he didn't get enough time to spend with her, so he took her on a route a week ago to spend some quality time together. I said that was nice of him and asked how old she was. He paused for a second and then told me she was 13. That made me suspicious because not only did he hesitate before answering, but I've worked in a shoe store before, and I know those shoes must belong to a much younger girl, both because of the size and the style. It also didn't seem like the kind of clothes or shoes you'd have a little girl bring on a trip like this. It was weird, but not scary. Also, having worked at a shoe store before, I was almost positive those shoes were two different sizes. I told him the shoes were cute, and leaned back and grabbed one of them and proved to myself that they had to be different sizes. In no way does a little girl wear two totally different sizes. Still, I wasn't really scared. I just thought he wasn't being totally honest, and that's his business so I didn't really mind it. It's just a weird thing to be dishonest about, even to a stranger. I put the shoe back and when I turned around I saw the look on his face. He seemed half worried and half angry. I immediately apologized for touching his things and he said it was okay, although it didn't look okay. By then we were just entering Roseburg. We kept driving through the town and he told me he knew a good motel on the far end of town and he'd let me off there. He asked me what I'd brought with me in my backpack. It seemed like an innocent question, but it came off like he was interested in what I had on me, not simply whether or not I'd brought any clothes or toothbrush. I told him I had enough, but I didn't tell him anything specific about the contents of my backpack. I didn't have a weapon of any type, just some socks, makeup, and my purse. We ended up passing a repair shop on the side of the road and he pointed to it and told me that's the place I should go tomorrow morning to get a tow truck. It felt kind of strange to me because he didn't tell me it was coming up. He just pointed it out. I said I had missed it and asked what the name of the shop was. He responded by just telling me it was straight south off the interstate and I can't miss it. As if he didn't remember the name. At this point, I began to get a little worried. I didn't feel threatened by Rick, but he didn't seem to be legit. As we kept driving, I noticed we were now coming to the far north end of Roseburg, and that soon we'd be leaving the town behind. I asked him where this motel is, and he told me it was just north of town. I told him that was a little far from the repair shop for me, and asked if there was any place closer for me to stay. He didn't answer. Now I'm a little worried about Rick's intentions for me. I got my backpack and put it in my lap. He looked over and saw it and asked if I was okay. I looked over and smiled at him and told him I was okay. Just cold. 
You know those signs on the highway that tell you how far off the next rest stop, gas station, or motel is? Well, they had those back then too, but usually only on the outskirts of a town. It's the town's way of motivating you to stop for gas or lodging now where they can tax it, rather than continuing on and sleeping somewhere unincorporated. Well, we came upon one of those signs. It said there wouldn't be a motel for 20 miles, and we were leaving Roseburg. I knew then that Rick wasn't taking me to a motel just past the town's limit. I didn't know what he wanted, but I did not want it to happen. I looked over slowly at Rick and luckily he hadn't seen the sign, I think, because he was busy lighting a cigarette. I began looking frantically out the window to see if there were any places I could make an excuse to stop at. Maybe I could ask to stop at a gas station for something to drink and then run away. There was not one open. I decided I'd have to pull out the big guns and ask him to pull over so I could urinate. I looked over at him and asked if he'd pull over to let me pee on the side of the road. He pulled his lit cigarette out of his mouth and looked at me. He asked, You have to pee? And I shook my head yes. Well, go ahead and pee then, Jenny. He told me. I like the smell. And he smiled at me. And it sent shivers down my spine. I pretended to laugh and he frowned at me. Don't f***ing laugh at me, Jenny. He told me. I immediately stopped pretending to be fine, and so did Rick. He could tell I was scared now, and he just gave me this look like he wanted to hit me. I asked him where we were going, and he told me not to worry about that. At this point, I could actually see the end of Roseburg coming up ahead. No more lights after that, just woods. Immediately, I heard my dad's voice in my head telling me to run. Not to worry about getting hurt. Just run. I opened the door and tried to jump out. The truck must have been moving at 30 or 40 miles an hour. And as I moved towards the open door, Rick grabbed my backpack. He had been trying to grab me, but I was pressed against the far end of the cab. I heard my dad's voice again telling me to run and I tried to pull my backpack away from Rick, but his grip was too strong. I gave up and just fell back out of the cab and into the grass. The impact knocked the wind out of me and I rolled around in the grass till I came to a stop. Immediately I sat up despite the sharp pain in my back, and I saw Rick's truck speeding up on his way out of the town. He did not stop. I got up and limped my way back to town and ran up to the first home I saw and pounded on the front door. An old man opened the door looking very tired yet also very worried. I begged him to call the cops and when he saw the bruises on my face and grass stains on my clothes, he threw open the door and let me come in. He sat me on the couch while he ran to the phone. His wife came down to find me on the couch crying and him on the phone telling the local sheriff to come as soon as possible. She got me a glass of water and a blanket. They were both so nice to me. The sheriff arrived and expected me to be drunk at first. 
About halfway through my story, he realized I was not drunk, and there was truth to the story I was telling. He called up two deputies who were asleep at home and had them patrol north on the interstate looking for a big red 18-wheeler. He even called up the next town north and asked them to send a patrol south. They didn't find any red 18-wheelers on the road, but they assumed he probably sped his way right through their town too before they were able to send out a patrol. The nice old couple who had let me in ended up letting me stay with them. The sheriff kept a deputy outside all night. The next day, he took me to the station to fill out an official report and look at some photos of 18-wheelers so I could pick out the exact color and model. He drove me to the repair shop, which just happened to be the same one Rick pointed out to me. He had them tow my truck in and had the sheriff's department pay for it. They got my dad's pickup running in no time at all, and the sheriff asked me to stay in town for a few more nights. I was totally fine with that because I didn't want to meet Rick on the road again. I stayed at the old couple's home for three more nights and spent my days with the sheriff as we patrolled the interstate and called nearby towns asking if any truckers had been pulled over matching my description. I did stay in contact with the sheriff and the old couple who helped me. The old couple both passed away about a year and a half later. I went to their funerals and spoke to their kids who were about my dad's age at the time and told them everything their parents had done for me. They were very proud of their parents. I even stayed at their home on my way back down from Seattle when I eventually brought my dad's truck back to him. The sheriff would call me from time to time and ask if he could send me some photos. It seemed every few months he would arrest a trucker who had a red semi or similar vehicle and he would want to see if I recognized him. He says that Rick probably did not frequent that route as much as he said he did because he didn't seem too familiar with the town, which is one reason I was suspicious of him. Odds are Rick was a crazy serial killer, or at least a child abductor and sexual predator, but he travels the whole United States and there was no way to know where he is now. Wherever Rick is now, I hope he never really hurt anyone, or at least I hope he never hurt anyone ever again. But if he did, especially if he did hurt the two little girls whose clothes he had in the back of his truck, then I hope that wherever he is, he's suffering and alone. We never did find Rick. Kyle here. Out of curiosity, I started researching serial killers' names to see if there were any Ricks. I didn't find any, but that makes sense, as Rick would likely be a fake name anyway. I didn't find any killers who were known to use Rick as a pseudonym, but there were several truck driver killers named Robert. A possibility, maybe, if they were inexperienced or if it was a spontaneous crime. They wouldn't have a go-to fake name and go for the first name that pops into their head, which makes sense it would start with the same letter. There's also at least one trucker killer that was never identified, the redhead killer, who had a propensity for, you guessed it, redheads. 
I decided to also search for truck driver killers in Oregon, Washington, and California. And then I remembered the I-5 killer, who murdered and robbed and raped people along the I-5 corridor. But then I remembered that he didn't use a semi-truck to do so. Um, but after searching for the Pacific Northwest killers and truckers, I came across Wayne Adam Ford. Wayne Adam Ford is a serial killer, a serial rapist, and possibly necrophiliac who was active in... I wasn't talking to you, Siri. Anyway, who was active in various locations of the United States and Canada because of his job as a truck driver. Ford turned himself in. He walked into a county sheriff department in Eureka, California back in 1998. He actually walked in there with a woman's severed breast in his pocket. He confessed to having killed four women in 97 and 98 and is thought to have killed others, which may put him out of the realm of our story happening in the 80s. However, she survived, so maybe it was Ford. Most criminals have several failed attempts before committing a crime. Then, of course, it could also be someone who was never identified, never caught. Someone who could still be driving up and down our highways. I posted some photos on Instagram. Some are of maps where the person in the story says they were. Green, Oregon, and Roseburg, Oregon. I mapped that to the location Ford turned himself in, in Eureka, California. Uh, they're less than five hours away, and a straight shot on the Interstate 5. She mentioned the truck didn't have a trailer on it, which could fit with this because if he were hauling from California to anywhere up north, and he apparently even went up to Canada, he could have dropped the load and be coming back to California in just the truck cab. I guess we'll never really know who it was and if they were ever caught. And that's the part that gives me nightmares. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time. Sweet dreams. <laughs>